Let's pray together, everyone. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to sinful man in and through this love story that is the Bible. You gave it to us not simply to be good advice, not to be a magical book that we would flip open and find an answer to our problems. But God, you gave it to us to reveal the truth of who you are, the truth of who we are, as sinners separated from our Creator. But you didn't leave it there to simply shame us, even though you had the right to do that because we rebelled against you. But God, you told a, and you tell a love story in and through the Bible. That all the way back into Genesis 3, that you made a promise that Eve would have an offspring, a male, one who would come that would crush the head of the serpent, that he would come through Abram, and that he would bless all the nations, that he would come through the tribe of Judah as one to whom all tribute and authority belongs, that he would come through the nation of Israel, that he would come through the tribe of David's family, that he would sit on the throne for all eternity, and then he was born to Mary and Joseph in that manger, God who emptied himself, stepped down into the cesspool that is humanity, the cesspool that we made. You came down, and you went to a cross to demonstrate the fullness of your love. So God, this morning, I pray that for whatever reason we may have come, that we would lay pride, ego, everything aside, and that we would lean into the Word, and that we would hear from you, that we would be changed and transformed by it for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are still in our equipped series in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 8, we will be in verses 14 to 22 today. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 22. I'll give you just a moment to turn there and then I'll read it for us. I'm reading from the HCSB, not because it's divinely inspired or better than any other version, but simply because that's the Bible that I bought at Costco. (laughs) Beginning in verse 14, When Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came... They brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weakness and carried our diseases. When Jesus saw large crowds around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea, A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, 
Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew eight fourteen to 22. I want to start off with the point of the message this morning. We're going to emphasize this point and come back to it over and over again. That true disciples serve not to win favor or grace with God, but purely out of spirit-born thankfulness as authentic worship. If you have a bulletin and you see the, the blanks that are there and you want to fill that in, I'll leave it up for just another moment. True disciples serve not to win favor or grace with God, but purely out of spirit-born thankfulness as authentic worship. Don't feel too bad if you didn't get it all down. We'll see it again. The first point that I want to make today in supporting that main point is that Emmanuel came down. Some of you may be thinking, we got it, Pastor. Big deal. And if you really lean into the Scripture and you lean into who Jesus Christ is, the fact that Emmanuel came down should knock your socks off. It should blow you away that God Almighty, the Eternal Son, emptied Himself and He allowed Himself to come down into the cesspool that is humanity, the cesspool that we made, in order to solve our sin problem, in order to redeem us. So when we say Emmanuel came down, what we're saying is something really heavy, really profound. God with us came down. We could turn all the way back to Matthew 1.1 and we could look there for a moment and the first verse says, This is the Biblios Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you're wondering the fullness of that statement about Jesus being the new Genesis... This is the book of the new Genesis of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we read that in some translations like the HCSB say, it's a historical record of Jesus. And then it goes into a genealogical record that we don't really care too much about, so we fast forward to the good stuff about the nativity in verse 18. And we miss the beauty of verse 1. Matthew wrote very intentionally to say, this is the Biblios Genesis. This is the book of Genesis. That Jesus Christ, the one who is the Messiah, the one who God promised through Eve, through Abram, through Judah, through the tribe of Israel, through David's family, and ultimately the one who would come to be born in a manger, that he did so to take up our infirmities and to carry our diseases to reconcile us with God. A friend of mine I was speaking with this week, he's a pastor of another church in the area, and he shared his testimony with me. 
And he said that he went to this church for a long time, several weeks. And in going, he said that the pastor oftentimes would show just random videos as part of the sermon. And he mentioned things like he would show cats playing. And he said that there would be months that would go by that the pastor would take a Bible up to the pulpit. And even if he did take a Bible up to the pulpit, he never opened it. And even if he did open it, that he never preached from it. And if he did, on the rare occasion, preach from it, he would pick a single word, and then he would connect it to Fox News, and then he would base his entire sermon on a news story from Fox News. Nothing from Scripture. He was raised an atheist, not the pastor, but the man that I was speaking with, who is now the pastor of that church. And he said when the pastor invited him and his wife into his office, because they had been coming for a while, the pastor started to talk to him and say, have you asked Jesus into your heart? And he said, hold up, bro. I know where this is going. I grew up in another state, in another city, and if we wanted to use the skate parks... These Christians would come and they would bug us and they would ask us, have you asked Jesus into your heart? Have you sinned? And because we wanted to skate, we would say yes because we knew that was the right answer. And then they would come over and they would pray with us and inside my head, he said, I would say, let's get it over with so that I can get on with skating and have fun with my friends. And he said this pastor who had never preached the gospel, never said who Jesus was, never sat down with him and said, I understand, but do you realize that this time could be different? This time, things could be different. And this young man who was in his early 20s, who was a staunch atheist, that hated Christianity, and the only reason why he was going was the only friend that he had in the world, besides his wife, invited him to church. Never heard the gospel, but he heard the reality and the truth that this time, things could be different. He was never discipled by that pastor. He never heard the gospel from that pastor. And in time, a friend of his gave him a book about what the gospel is, and it melted his heart, and he wondered, why doesn't my pastor preach this way? Why doesn't my pastor get up, stand in front of the congregation, and instead of sharing cat videos, entertain people with jokes, sing songs, and rock out with a big band, why doesn't he share the gospel? Over time, because of what God had done in that man's heart, he quickly became the associate pastor of that church. And within a very short time, he's now the pastor of that church. Emmanuel came down. Jesus, he is the eternal son. He's not just a dude. He's not a moral teacher. He's not a hippie or a pacifist or a communist. He's not a spiritual guru like Buddha or Gandhi. He's the eternal son. 
He's Messiah. He's the Creator Cosmos. He's our Savior and Redeemer. He's God who came down, Emmanuel, who condescended into the cesspool of humanity. conversations with people and they say do you really believe that humanity's really that bad? I say absolutely not. I think humanity is way worse. I think humanity's worse. See we don't think humanity's that bad until we're the ones on the wrong end of murder or rape or incest or child abuse or pedophilia, or sex trafficking, or slavery, or hate crimes, or abortion. And then if you ask someone, do you really think humanity is that bad? What do you think their answer is going to be? No, it's worse. And see, God in Genesis 6 looked down before the flood and he saw that inside of man's heart there was only evil all the time. The Bible tells us something that I still haven't fully wrapped my brain around, that God actually regretting, regretted having made, made us. Our Creator regretted having made us. See, I think in eternity past, God knew what was going to happen. But see, there's a difference between knowing and experiencing. There's a difference between knowing that humanity was going to sin and then watching the depravity of humanity and the way that people's lives were wrecked and torn apart. And in Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that God's heart was literally broken. Emmanuel came down. The lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth stepped into humanity for lepers, for paralytics, for you and for me, for vile sinners. My next point is, is that sin causes suffering. And the reality is, is sin isn't this amorphous, invisible thing that it comes from sinners, the reality is is that sinners cause suffering. Oftentimes people ask me the question, Pastor, how can God, how could a loving, benevolent God, eternal, almighty God, allow pain and suffering in the world? Billy Graham's best friend that he was in ministry with resigned from ministry and became an atheist until the day he died. Because of that question. How could a loving God allow it? See, because the conclusion that we come up at our finite minds is that God is either incompetent, see, because He's not fixing the problem of sin, right? So He's either incompetent, incapable, or He's unwilling. He's not interested. He's not that attentive, And in either case, people reconcile in their minds and in their hearts 
that if there is this thing that is an almighty God, and He can't fix the situation in their minds, they think, then He can't be God. And if He can fix it and He doesn't, then He's not God. Because He's just sitting there watching us wallow in our sin. And what we forget is, in our limited understanding and intelligence and wisdom, that there's a possible alternative. See, there's this thing called free will. And we want it. And in fact, we claim and demand it. We blame God for the outcomes and consequences of our decisions. See, ultimately, the question about whether or not there is this loving God and how He could allow us or allow sin to be in the world reveals the truth, a universal recognition that there's a discrepancy, right? There's a discrepancy between the way that we, as human beings, view how the world should be and the way it is. What makes us think that? If not, that bit of heaven that God has woven into our hearts, that nothing in this world can ever satisfy or fulfill. Why does God allow it? Well, I'll offer up this suggestion to make us keenly aware of what eternity will be like separated from Him. Why does God, who is loving, almighty, omnipotent, omnisapient, perfect in holiness and in every way conceivable and beyond, why does He allow pain and suffering in this world? He does it to make us keenly aware of what eternity will be like separated from Him. We have free will to an extent. We have the ability to make choices to an extent. Pain, suffering, weeping, gnashing of teeth, all of those things can happen in hell for all eternity. The one thing that won't ever happen in hell is repentance. Sin causes suffering. So I want to take us back to our scripture for today. Kind of laid a little bit of foundation for us. When Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law. That's not Jesus' mother-in-law, by the way. That's Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus went into Peter's house and he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Big deal, right? Emmanuel, God, went into Peter's house. Jesus cares. God Almighty, the Eternal Son, stepped down from heaven, went up on that mountaintop, discipled the Sermon on the Mount, preached it, and He came down and He ran into a paralytic and He healed him. And He said, I am willing, that's why I came. He went into Capernaum and He met a centurion, And he said, if you're willing, and he said, I am willing. And Jesus was awestruck. The centurion said, you don't even have to come under my roof. I understand, I'm a centurion. I'm in control and in charge of a hundred men. And all I've got to do is say, jump. And they say, how high, sir? 
And I recognize the fact that you are so far above me as eternally God the Son that all you've got to do is say a word and my servant who's laying at home in agonizing pain, paralyzed, all you've got to do, Jesus, because of who you are, not as a magic healer, not as Benny Hinn, boom, charlatan, no, but as eternally God, that all you've got to do is say a word. Jesus was awestruck. And the same Jesus goes into Peter's house. Why? Because he cares about Peter. He cares about Peter, and he cares about his mother-in-law, and he cares about a leper, and he cares about a paralytic, and he cares about you. And I just don't think we really believe that. See, Jesus didn't come to sit on a lofty throne and have people wash his feet. Like many sports celebrities, Jesus on Instagram and we would tell him how awesome he is and we would hope maybe Jesus will follow me back. Yes! Jesus followed me back. He's my friend on Facebook. I had a friend who used to stalk celebrities every opportunity to photobomb walls inside this person's house of all of these random celebrities that they'd run into over the years. And one day I saw a picture in that person's house of them with Charles Barkley. And I said, isn't that cool? And I said, do you think Charles Barkley has a picture of you in his house? And the air went out of the balloon. And I didn't say it to be a jerk. I did it, see, because Jesus not only has a picture of you in His house, He's gone to make a room in His Father's house for you. And He went to the cross for you. And yet we spend more time chasing after celebrities, after fame, after the things of the world that Jesus says that moths will destroy and rust will corrode and we don't seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come just to save us from hell, which He does, in fact, and He did, but He came to save us for glory. See, this woman, Peter's mother-in-law, says she was lying in bed with a fever And in verse 15 it said, So he, Jesus, touched her hand and the fever left her. And I think the most beautiful part of this entire passage is, Then she got up and began to serve him. And I just wonder, if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you claim that you're a Christian and that He's done what you claim He's done in your life, why are so many of us still lying in bed? Why are so many of us saying, I'm unworthy, groveling on our face, on our knees? He would never 
ask me. He would never call me to serve him. It's exactly what he's done. Peter's mother-in-law got it. And the moment she was healed, it says, she got up and began to serve him. Jesus died and was resurrected, not just to save us from sin, but for a relationship lived out through the church, not as Lone Ranger edifying, discipling, iron, sharpening, iron, and advancing the mission of God to where? To the ends of the earth, to kick down the gates of hell, to rescue the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for His glory. I think I might need to say that again. That He rescued us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to kick down the gates of hell... And to bring honor and glory to His name. Amen. Isaiah 53, 4-6, we read it. Surely He took up our infirmities. Written seven to eight hundred years before Jesus ever walked on the earth. Carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned away to our own way. And the Lord is laid on him the iniquity of us all. As a young Christian, when I read that, and somebody told me, you realize that that's a prophetic statement from Scripture written almost 800 years before Jesus, His incarnation. Long before Jesus ever went to the cross, pierced for our transgressions. I get that part. Crushed for our iniquities. I said, when was Jesus crushed? They said, go back and read in Scripture, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying so intensely, there's drops of blood, that He's on the cross, and He's bearing the full weight of all sin and all shame for all eternity, crucifying it, so that we could be restored and reconciled and redeemed to the Father's house for His glory crushed Jesus came Emmanuel came down and he took it all to the cross what I want you to know today folks is that everyone responds Peter's mother-in-law got up and began to serve and I think one of the coolest things in scripture is, is that it doesn't tell us what she did See, because if it, told, if it told us what we did, we'd pervert that. We'd turn that into some sort of religious ceremony, like foot washing. If your church doesn't do foot washing, then you're not a church. You don't get it! If you're not using wine then you're not a, in the Lord's Supper, then you're not a real church because Jesus had wine. You don't get it! If you don't take a real loaf of bread and break it in half, then you're not a real church. Jesus wasn't talking about bread and wine. 
He was talking about fellowship, that he's about to go to the cross for his friends. And he said, whenever you do this, whenever you get together as friends to eat a meal, it doesn't have to be a special ceremony inside the walls of a church that didn't even exist yet. But when you get together, would you break bread? Would you honor me? Would you do this, my friends? Would you do this in remembrance of me? Because this is the new covenant. See, Peter's mother-in-law, it doesn't tell us anything about what she did, but it tells us that she did it. She served him. I remember when I was saved, the moment of, and I got down on my face, and I've shared this with my wife and many other people, in that moment of just being crushed in my shame and also gloriously being redeemed by faith in God... And His mercy poured out upon me. The words that I said to Jesus were this. God, if you want me to sell shoes on the moon, then I will do that for you. And you may think that's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. But it reminds me all the time of the extent to which I will go for my Savior. Would you go to this, the moon and sell shoes for Jesus? Would you move to Dallas just because you feel like the Lord was saying, this is where I want you to go, and you don't have a friend or a family member, and you don't know what tomorrow holds? Would you? Would you marry the most beautiful woman that you've ever seen? That was an easy one. I said yes to that one very quickly. Would you pastor a church in Poetry, Texas, even though you've never been there before? Even, even though there's no elders and there's no deacons? Even though the former pastor had left almost three years before? Even though things are in disarray? Because you called me, Lord, I said, yes, I'll go. We have a song in Baptist tradition, wherever he leads, I'll go. I remember the first time I heard that song brought me to tears because it so resonated in my heart because of those words. I'll go to the moon and sell shoes for you. And I heard this woman singing a solo at First Baptist San Antonio and she said the words, wherever he leads, I'll go. And I said, yes, yes. When evening came, they brought him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick, so that what was spoken about him through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He took up our weaknesses and carried our diseases. When Jesus saw the large crowds around him, he gave the order to go to the other side. I think we might just pass over that, but I think it's worth noting that Jesus wasn't interested in the crowd. He wasn't interested in popularity. He was interested in individuals like you. That he would redeem and restore and reconcile with God. And that those individuals wouldn't stay individuals any longer. But they would become members of his bride. And they would take the gospel to the ends of the earth.
He gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe, some translations will say a teacher of the law, approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm in, Jesus. See, today in our churches, someone comes up and says, Pastor, I'm in. Well, hey, as long as we can add you to the pool, as long as I can tell people that there aren't 40 people who are members of poetry, but now there's 41. We're growing exponentially. You're in. Do you need to ask me anything about what? No, I don't need to ask you anything about what you believe because then it starts getting sticky. Starts getting kind of ugly and then you might be disqualified and then we start losing members. And if I make a real solid stand on the things that we believe and the things that the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to do and be, then people are going to walk out the doors. And then what about our new building project? What about our new children's wing? What about that new BMW I've been eyeballing? Who's going to cover that? Sign here, you're a member, but Jesus didn't say that. Jesus told him in verse 20, Foxes have dens or holes, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It doesn't tell us that the man left, but we know that he did. He was turned away so easily disqualified because following Jesus wasn't going to be comfortable. Lord, another disciple said, first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus responded, sure, no problem, man. You go take care of what you got to take care of. And then whenever it's convenient for you, come on back and we're still going to be doing our thing. And then you can kind of jump in on this thing whenever it's convenient for you. Doesn't matter if you show up once a week, a couple times a year. We're just blessed that you're hanging around. God bless you. God bless you. The disciple said, let me go. And Jesus said, you're disqualified. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. See, we want Jesus to be comfortable. We want Jesus to be okay with our priorities and Him being 8th, 10th, 20th, 100th on the list. And He's not. See, because He's Emmanuel. He's God who stepped down from heaven to go to a cross to redeem and reconcile us for all eternity. And in the meantime... He gives us this privilege as His bride, the church, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Peter's mother-in-law got up and served him. And so my question, how? And there's that little carrot right there. It's probably more important than the how is why. Why? Are you serving because you want to be a fry manager? You want, the, you want the name tag? You want the title? You want an office? You want everybody to say, oh, you're that. Oh, yeah. Super important. Are you serving because you love the Lord?
and you'll sew shoes on the moon. Last week I put up this scripture verse from Psalm 26.2. I just showed it to our kids just a little while ago. I think this is one of the greatest prayers in all of scripture. Psalm 26.2 Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. See, because scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. But we don't really believe that, right? That's those other people. That's not me. My heart's pure. David took it before the Lord, and I bet it was more than one time. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind so I can get up after I've repented of my sin party that I can turn to you and that I can do something that actually glorifies your name. Because Romans 14.23 tells us that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Today, during the time of invitation, I just pray that you'd respond. That's what this sermon is all about. It's about responding. So what has the Lord laid on your heart? When you pray this prayer right now and you close your eyes and you say, Lord, test me and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. What's He saying your response should be?